I'm Emma. And I'm Hillary. And this is the Probably Not Lupus podcast. Season two, we are back to discuss more medical mysteries and rare, strange, or unusual case studies. These are based on mostly true stories collected from our friends, medical history, journals, and fellow doctors. To protect privacy, names, dates, and locations may have been altered. Get ready for your medical mystery bolus. Probably Not Lupus is a show about our favorite medical mysteries. Nothing the hosts say should be taken for medical advice or opinion. We are not experts, nor are we journalists. It's just for fun. So enjoy. Patient X is a 74-year-old retired healthcare worker. She presents with fever, abdominal pain, nausea, and vomiting following an inguinal hernia surgery seven days ago. At first, her doctors assume she must have developed an infection during the surgery. But after further history reveals her symptoms started much sooner than her surgery, and that she spends six months of the year in the tropical paradise Grenada, her doctors shift their diagnosis to a different kind of infection. Listen now as Emma and Hillary return to discuss rare, strange, and unusual case studies in the season two premiere of the Probably Not Lupus podcast. Okay. Well, welcome back to the Probably Not Lupus podcast season two. Over 300 listens to our first season, which is honestly 298 more than I ever thought we would get. (laughs) Now we're back after a quick break. We are here to bring you 10 more rare, strange, and unusual case studies. And hopefully we have some new and improved sound and production quality. I watched some YouTube videos. Emma finally got some space cleared on her computer for some storage. So I guess you can say we're getting professional around here. You could say my eight hours at the Apple store last week should be well worth it. Okay. So this week, this season, this month, this back to school season, I want to start by reading you three different case stems today instead of just one case stem like we normally do. So if you're ready, let's start with case one. Joey, a three-year-old boy, presents to the doctor with fever, nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea for the past day. He has not been able to keep anything down by mouth and has had profuse and watery stools. He attends daycare and several of his classmates have been out sick recently as well. No adult members of his household have been ill. He has a fever of 38 degrees Celsius and an elevated heart rate. His mucous membranes are dry and his eyes appear sunken and his abdomen has active bowel sounds. Case number two. Sam. A 19-year-old college student presents to the doctor with fever, abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea for the past day. He reports he has had 10 stools in the past 24 hours, and he has noted blood mixed in with the stool on several occasions. Although he normally cooks for himself, he reports having eaten chicken in the college cafeteria three days ago. On exam, he has a fever of 38 degrees Celsius. 
His abdomen has hyperactive bowel sounds and is diffusely tender to palpation. Case 3. Jane is a 74-year-old retired healthcare worker who presents to the doctor with fever, abdominal pain, nausea, and vomiting following an inguinal hernia surgery repair seven days ago. She has not had a bowel movement since the surgery. Upon further inquiry, the patient mentions that she has had a decreased appetite and unintentional weight loss of 25 pounds over the past month. When asked about any distinctive food choices or habits, she states that she lives in rural Grenada for six months of the year and that she plants and consumes her own vegetables. On exam, the patient has a fever of 38 degrees Celsius, decreased bowel sounds, and diffuse abdominal pain. Now, Emma, I just read you three similar yet different case studies, and I'm curious what your overall thoughts are. Yeah. So, I mean, they're, like you said, all similar yet different at the same time. Um, same, same, but diff. Mm -hmm. And they all obviously, I mean, the first one to me, break it down, screams viral. Um, mm. Just saying that, you know, a lot of pe his fellow classmates have it, the watery stool fever, very typical of a viral infection. Mm -hmm. The second one to me kind of sounds like food poisoning. Right. Um, I mean, kind of gave it a little bit away by the poultry. Yep. Yep. And then, you know, the nausea, abdominal pain, vomiting, diarrhea, and the acute symptoms of having only one day, right. Hen stools in the past day, uncomfortable, but definitely sounds like gastroenteritis. Right. <laughs> so okay. usually caused by food. Um, and then mm -hmm. the last one, really not sure what pathogen or sort of what bug it's from, but it definitely sounds like some sort of complication of from the hernia repair. Right. Um, just hearing like no bowel movement since the hernia um, mm -hmm. surgery and decreased appetite, changes mm. in stool. And then like unintentional weight loss of 25 pounds in a month is a lot. So that's definitely yes. concerning, especially at the age of 74. Yes. Um, so I'm kind of wondering like that weight loss, but then her hernia repair was only seven days ago, but the weight loss is in a month. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I'm interested to know more about that one. Yeah. So, I mean, you're spot on. All of these are due to infection. All of these people have some kind of infection. And it's interesting that you pointed out that you thought the infection was probably due to the hernia repair in the third case, because of course, anytime we have surgery, there is risk of infection. But as you accurately noted, the symptoms actually started before the hernia repair. So let's talk a little bit more about case three, because it is a little bit different than the other two. You know, the other two were very quick onset right away. They were having vomiting, diarrhea, fever. Um, as you mentioned, you know, it was a really quick turnaround. It wasn't like a symptom that was lingering for a month or a long time. It happened really rapidly. Mm -hmm. Whereas this last case really does seem to be a little bit different you know, there is also fever, there is also nausea, but there's no diarrhea. In fact, there's no stool. The patient's not pooping at all. So what could possibly be causing that? And also interesting, like just another difference is that she's an elderly person and the other two, you know, three and 19, right. They kind of all have that fe fever and nausea aspect, mm -hmm. but looking at age as well as sometimes time of year can play a role. Right. Yeah. So as I mentioned, you know, all of the people in these cases do have infections, but in medicine, that really isn't specific enough. And in general, I am simplifying here. 
there are five major infectious agents. So like you accurately said, the first one sounded like a viral infection. The second case you thought sounded like a bacterial infection. And the third case is also an infection and it's an infection of a parasitic worm. I didn't have five case studies. So we're not going to talk about fungus today, but do know that when we're talking about infection, we could be talking about viruses, bacteria, parasitic worms, protozoa, or fungi. And in general, those are the different ways you can become infected with something. So I want to single out case three because of its rare, strange, and unusual cause, strongoloides stercoralis, and its treatment. And I was hoping maybe you guys could stay tuned until after a break. Is this a thing we're going to do? Take a little break in the middle of the podcast? We could do it. Grab a drink. All right. We'll be right back. Welcome back. And let's get into Strongoloides stercoralis. So this is an infection of a worm. And about 30 to 100 million people are infected worldwide. Now, it's not very common in Canada. And traditionally, it has been considered a disease of tropical climates. So like in the Caribbean, West and East Africa, also in Southeast Asia. But these infections have increased worldwide because of travel and immigration. And this has led to an increase in people seeking medical care for it in Canada. And in fact, more than 80% of Canada's immigrants come from places where strongoloides is endemic. So as I mentioned, it's a type of worm. It's a roundworm. And the infectious larvae, so the stage of the worm where they're still in their little larvae, are found in the soil. And what happens when a person walks on that soil, let's say in bare feet, it penetrates the intact human skin. And after it migrates through the tissue, it matures into an adult form in the small bowel. And unlike other parasitic worms, strongoloides has an indefinite lifespan in the human host. And that is because of an auto-infection cycle where the infective larvae re-penetrate the host skin or bowel and then return into adults again. So just because you stepped on dirty soil once and picked up the larvae doesn't mean that if all you do is avoid the soil, you won't get it again. You can actually keep getting infected with these worms because the larvae just keep penetrating into the bowel and then turning into adults. So how do we know what you're infected with? As we mentioned in the cases, all of them shared a lot of similarities. The main one being fever, right? Whenever we think fever, we often think of infectious cause, but how do we differentiate between those five different types of infections? And Emma, you already kind of pointed out before the break a few of those ways. So like time of year, for instance, age of the patient affected, route of transmission. So was it food that they ate or was it soil that they stepped on or vegetables that they grew in their garden in a tropical climate? And all of these things that we gather in our clinical picture and our history help to narrow down what the diagnosis actually is. We do also have an OVA and parasite test where we have someone basically send in a sample of their poop and we look at it under a microscope and we check to see if there are any eggs, parasitic eggs or any parasites in the stool itself. And there are also blood tests we can do to look for different types of infections to try and narrow down what one of those five infectious causes are we dealing with. But when it comes to strongoloides, at least sometimes stool tests aren't actually that specific because as I mentioned, right, the adult worm that lives in the small bowel, 
maybe you're not actually going to see any eggs in the stool, or maybe you won't actually see any of the adult worms in the stool either. So it's not the most sensitive test. And this is why, again, that clinical picture is so important. And like I mentioned, you know, this person lives in a tropical climate in Grenada, and they are eating vegetables that they're growing in their home dirt there. So if you have a patient, even though you're in Canada, who has a significant history where they live in another country, especially a tropical country, some of these rare and more strange type of infections need to come up high on your differential diagnosis list. Now, the good news for our 73-year-old retired healthcare worker is that Strongyloides has a very simple and effective treatment. And that treatment is something called ivermectin. And Emma, I'm curious, have you heard about ivermectin at all lately? Uh, I think I have. And I think it is actually usually a dewormer, usually used in livestock, specifically horses. Um, and I'm pretty sure that there's this group of people in the world that happen to believe that it could also be a cure or prevent the COVID-19 virus. Yes, there has been a lot of buzz about ivermectin lately in the news and on social media, maybe on some other podcasts that you listen to. And as easy as it is for me to make a joke about a person being too scared to take an FDA approved vaccine for a virus, but on board with a non FDA approved use of a drug intended for horses, it's not actually that simple. Because although ivermectin is in fact used for horses as a dewormer, it is also used in humans for the same reason. And that's because of the mechanism of action that ivermectin has. So what ivermectin does is it disrupts the nerve cells in worms. So it doesn't affect human nerve cells, but the parasitic worms, it disrupts their nerve cells and it causes them to die. Now in pharmacology, when we're talking about drugs and how they act, the exact mechanism of action is often unclear in spite of many studies trying to figure it out. So just because a medication isn't known to help with a condition doesn't mean that it can't help with that condition, even if we don't know how or why exactly. So as an example with ivermectin here, it is a dewormer that is used to, as I mentioned, kill parasitic worms. But for some reason, there are some studies that show that it also has antiviral properties. So even though our 73-year-old retired healthcare worker is infected with a parasite and the treatment is ivermectin, perhaps ivermectin could be used to treat viruses as well. So ivermectin today in 2021, there is a shortage right now. And the shortage is not because of a whole bunch more strongyloides infections or a sudden increase in veterinary use. It's actually because of a general misunderstanding of some scientific literature. So even though I mentioned that ivermectin disrupts the nerve cell of worms, over the years, it has also been studied for other properties like antibacterial and antiviral. Now, why a drug that disrupts nerve cell and worms might also kill a virus is unknown, but that doesn't make it impossible. And there are lots of examples in the medicine world where we think something does one thing and it actually also does another thing and it treats something else. So some research, if we want to talk about where this hype came from, some research in vitro, which literally means like in a test tube or in a petri dish, does suggest that ivermectin helps with some specific type of RNA viruses. And this led to researchers doing a systematic review of ivermectin trials and its viral effects. And although they concluded that maybe ivermectin could be useful against COVID-19 symptoms, 
They also said that more research was needed and the dose that was required to see effects was way higher than a safe therapeutic level. So although in a test tube, ivermectin did show that it killed COVID-19 virus, the dose was a dose that would be unsafe for any human to take. And it was never actually proved in humans. It just showed some potential positive results in a test tube. This led to many more studies being done. You know, of course, once we see early promising research, especially in a pandemic like COVID-19, it's not surprising that we are searching for answers. And I truly don't want to blame anyone out there who's looking for a reason to cure whatever ails them. Um, obviously you and I are both advocates for people's health and we want people to have free and informed choice when it comes to their treatment and their health care. But this is where it gets tricky, where we're walking the line of something that's an approved treatment for something. And we know that works versus something that we think maybe could work based on other research. And I think it's still super important to keep in mind patient safety and despite you know, the thought being there of something working, there can still be such serious adverse effects and potentially leading to death. And you kind of have to wonder, is that worth the risk? So I think it's really important to emphasize that for anyone who is starting a new drug, a new supplement, a herbal remedy, anything like that, to discuss it with your medical professional. And there can be a lot of hidden interactions that you as the general population wouldn't think about or wouldn't know. Um, and that's why there's people who go to school for yes years to help you with this. And I think any sort of medical professional is open to discussion. And ultimately we need to educate our patients about safety and making sure that nobody dies because they decide to take an experimental medicine based off of a theory. And so again, as I mentioned, as easy as it is to be like, oh, this person is just taking horse dewormer for their COVID-19 infection. Well, the reason people ran to livestock stores was because the pharmacies ran out of it. And the pharmacies didn't run out because people just were taking it, you know, without prescription. They were being prescribed it because doctors were curious if maybe it would help people's COVID-19 symptoms. But unfortunately, it couldn't keep up with the demand of a global pandemic. And that led to people going to livestock stores where you don't need a prescription and buying, you know, large tubes of the paste over the counter and then consuming it in quantities that is way too dangerous for a human, an adult human compared to, you know, a huge horse. Now, there was one large study that showed a positive result of ivermectin in COVID. And it looked at 400 people with COVID-19 symptoms and it found it reduced the death rate by 90%. But this study was published before it was even peer reviewed. And I'll link to the study in the show notes so that you can see how the data was tampered with and also plagiarized or honestly, maybe even just made up. But regardless of this poor study, the damage was already done and people latched onto ivermectin as a miracle cure for COVID as if you are sick and you want to get better, one might do. And that has led to the shortage and why we're talking about it today. And I think that's a problem with studies being published. And then the population, I'm going to say general population, average Joe mm -hmm. doing a quick Google search seeing, oh, look, ivermectin is, you know, reduces death by 90%. Of course, they're going to think it's a good idea to take for COVID-19. Right. However, again, misunderstanding of scientific literature, that is not what this means. That is clearly the data was tampered with. And again, not even peer reviewed, but people yeah. take headlines and run with it. 
And I think that's the problem we're seeing with a lot of headlines with COVID-19 is it's just a headline and nobody can, it's important to have that critical appraisal and be able to go through a study and see its flaws, see it, see what it's good for. Yeah, definitely. You, you said it like critical appraisal, that ability to, um, understand what it is that you're reading and be able to make accurate assumptions based off of what the authors are telling you. And there are still ivermectin trials going on today. They don't look very promising currently for COVID-19. And just a little reminder in case you were curious what is promising out there and has FDA approval, and that is the COVID-19 vaccine. And if you are worried about COVID-19 and you haven't been vaccinated yet in Canada and you are privileged enough to get vaccinated, ask your healthcare provider about that instead of ivermectin. So let's save the ivermectin for the people who we know it will help, like the strongaloides, livestock, or our little furry friends like dogs or cats. Yes, exactly. And actually, you know what? I have a little story time for you based on that. Okay, let's hear it. So I don't know if you know or not, if we've talked about this, but I used to work for something called Patient Transfer Network. And this is basically like 911 for doctors. So if you're a doctor and you work in some small hospital, let's say you get a patient in that you can't deal with at that hospital, you would call the patient transfer network and we get them transferred to a more suitable facility. Now this floor where I worked in a call center shared the space with the 911 dispatchers for BC emergency health services as well. And this is warning, personal opinion ahead, okay? In my personal opinion, When I worked there, the members who worked for BC Ambulance answering 911 phone calls were grossly understaffed and grossly overworked, and the morale on the floor was extremely low. We're talking about people answering high-stake calls, high-pressure all the time, working behind three computer screens, dispatching ambulances, coordinating receiving doctors. It is a really high-stress job. Now, on one rare and quiet evening shift in December, a call taker answered the phone and immediately you could hear the serious tone in his voice. Someone was calling in for their 18 month old and they were choking and were not breathing. And slowly all of the other call takers on the floor began to stand up one by one and poke their heads over their cubicles so that they could hear what was happening on the phone. And there was palpable tension as we all listened to the paramedic calmly but with appropriate urgency walk the person on the other end of the phone through CPR and a choking procedure. After what felt like an hour, which was in reality, probably like 25 seconds, the paramedic call taker stopped. Sorry, he what? He jumped up and skittishly ran under the sofa? How old is this child again? And then there was this like long pause and the call taker took a deep breath and said, ma'am, I'm so glad that your puppy has regained consciousness. Please continue to monitor him and get him to your nearest veterinarian for appropriate treatment. He then oh so politely reminded this woman in a panic that 911 is generally meant for human-related victims. Oh, that's so funny. And let me tell you, morale was never higher on the floor than after this guy saved this dog over the phone. He saved a puppy. He saved a puppy and everyone was so happy. Like truly just joy was felt on the floor. On an- and you know what? That is a story that he will never forget and tell everyone. Absolutely. And the moral of the story is we do love our pets and our pets share some of the same medications as we use. So please don't go out and use up livestock medication without a prescription 
because maybe your little furry friend can't get their heart murmur medication then. I, Hill, I think that's a great story and a great way to bring the whole episode together, wrap it up. The moral of the story is yes, we love them. We love our animals. I mean, I love my future dog already. However, um, know that 911 is for humans and sometimes medication is just for them. Yes. Thank you again for tuning back in to season two, episode one of the Probably Not Lupus podcast. We hope you missed us while we were on break and that you're excited to come back and listen to us as we bring you back Monday morning episodes every week, 7 a.m. It was so fun and great to be back with you still alone in our bedrooms. Yes. And I'm looking forward to some more mysteries this season and going through them all with you. Can't wait. All right. Well, we'll see everyone next week. See you next week. Bye. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. If you want to support our show, you can subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe even give us a rating and leave us a comment. Probably Not Lupus is written, recorded, edited, and produced by us alone, still in our bedrooms. If you want to chat with us, you can also find us on Instagram, YouTube, and Gmail at probablynotlupus.